Good morning. Only in Christ can we find the fulfillment of joy. Can you say amen? We've had just a delightful time already worshiping the Lord together, and uh, I'm excited about being in the house of God and enjoying this time together that we have now to look into the Word, the treasure that God has given us in the Holy Scriptures. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you would. As we continue our look at the book of uh, Philippians, and today we're actually going to be getting into uh, the heart of this message. Last week was more introductory material, but today we'll actually be looking at the text proper. And so I'm going to invite you to read along with me from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you today for our joy is made complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that you are our source of joy, you are our foundation and our source of grace and peace. And today, Lord, as we dive into this study of Philippians, we pray that You will open our hearts to Your Word. We pray that Your Spirit would illuminate it to our minds, and that as always, Lord, You would show us the practical applications for this Word to our life every day. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. How many of you enjoy people-watching? Yeah, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll get, uh, I was going to say drugged to the mall by my wife, but <laughs> after that marriage conference uh, preview video, maybe I should say, uh, sometimes, especially during Christmas, I'm delighted to accompany my wife to the mall. <laughs> and while we're there, I will usually, after visiting a few stores with her, find a cup of coffee and a place to sit and watch people. Because I just enjoy watching people. People are quirky. People are fun and funny. And sometimes the the most humor is when they're not meaning to be funny, but they just are. Right? I think that we should never take ourselves too seriously, but we should always take the things of the Lord seriously. Amen? So I'll be sitting there watching people, and as I watch people, whether it's at an airport or at a park or at a mall, uh, oftentimes it seems like people appear to be zombies. And you know what I mean by that. Not that their hair is disheveled and that they're wearing ratty clothes, but that they've got this expressionless look on their face. Many times. You know, you'll look at people and they just kind of have either a blank stare or a, a stern grimace, and they're just like moving from task to task. Kind of perfunctorily, mechanically, just, you get the impression going through the motions. And then all of a sudden, you'll see someone walking by, perhaps even alone, and they'll have a smile on their face. How sad that they stand out from the rest because of the smile. Now, you know, that's not to say that everyone who doesn't have a smile is necessarily angry or mad. Sometimes people just have a lot on their mind, right? And yet you get the impression that people are in the pursuit of happiness and joy and meaning, meaningfulness and satisfaction in life, and yet many of them are failing to find it. That they are pursuing it, but it is evading them. 
Well, we began our study of Philippians last week with some introductory material talking about how this is among the most relevant books for us to study because it is a book whose dominant mood is joy. Joy. And if there was ever a time that people needed joy, that time is now. And that pursuit of joy, or in our Declaration of Independence referred to as the pursuit of happiness, is being missed by so many people. What could be more relevant than studying a book that talks about joy so much? A book that has the dominant mood being one of joy. But what's really peculiar, very interesting, is that even though the the joy is the dominant mood of Philippians, one of its major themes is suffering. Wow, what a contrast. And yet what we learn is that it is God's plan for our life to be able to experience grace, to be able to experience peace, to be able to experience joy even in the midst of suffering. Aren't you glad for that? Because in our world, we will have trials, we'll have trouble, we'll have times of tremendous suffering. And yet, there is a joy that is to be had even in the midst of suffering. I mean, after all, Paul wrote this book of joy from prison. So if there's anyone who knows what it is to have joy in the midst of suffering, certainly it was the Apostle Paul. Well, as we look at the genre of the book of Philippians, we discover that it is an epistle. Say that with me. Epistle. Epistle, right? It's a fancy sounding theological term that means letter, right? An epistle of Paul. Now, that word can sometimes throw people for a loop. It reminds me of the first grade Sunday school teacher who was introducing a book, said, this book is an epistle. Can anyone tell me what an epistle is? little hand shot up and he called on little Johnny sitting there in the front row. And Johnny said, well, I think that an epistle is the wife of an apostle. (laughs) Well, I guess they kind of go together, but that's not at all what it is. An epistle simply means a letter. And yet there are some uh, contrasts between the two in their characteristics. That is, there are some differences between an epistle and a casual letter. A letter tends to be a little more personal, less literary. Typically, it addresses a specific situation and builds on a personal relationship. So very personal. Whereas an epistle, although it is a letter, is more artistic, more literary. It has a self-explanatory treatise and it's addressed not only to a person that the author is in relationship with, but also to a wider audience. And so Paul's epistles fall somewhere between these two. That we would look at the epistles of Paul and we would say, well, in some ways they are personal, in other ways they are public. In some ways they are academic and they are scholarly and they require you to roll up your sleeves and dig in. I mean, anyone who studied Paul knows that to be true. And yet in other ways, they are so attainable and so apprehensible and so clear cut. It's like the Bible teacher who once said, the Word of God 
can be grasped by a child and yet it can drown a theologian. It's so true. The things that God wants us to get, we get. And yet He also causes us to roll up our sleeves and dig in and study to show ourselves approved, workmen unto God that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Can you say amen? Well, more specifically, Philippians is not only an epistle, it's a thank you note. A thank you note. Now, we receive thank you notes periodically here at the church from our missionaries who are on the field. And uh, we, we hear from uh, our precious and beloved Maggie, we are constantly, and it's wonderful to get those letters coming back. But when we get those letters off the mission field, quite oftentimes they'll be ex- expressing gratitude and expressing thanks. Thank you for praying for me. And here are some other things you can be praying about. Thank you for partnering with me spiritually. Thank you for supporting me financially. And then they'll typically give us an update on what's happening in their ministry on the field. It's no surprise then that Paul did the same thing. He sends a thank you note to the church in Philippi. He greets them. He thanks them for their financial and prayerful support. And then he gives them an update on what's going on in the ministry. For truly, the Philippians were partners with Paul in ministry. What a wonderful thing to be able to say. And so this epistle is also a thank you note. But as an epistle... It contains doctrinal teaching and personal business and also practical advice for Christian living and practical advice for the church. Like a letter from one of our missionaries, it is personal. And like the other books of the Bible, it addresses not only the Philippians, but a wider audience. It addresses you and me today. Well, as we begin looking at the text here this morning, I want to consider the author, the audience, and the greeting. So we begin there by considering the author. Uh, back in verse 1, it told us, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So the author's name is stated right up front. Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now, back in Galatians chapter 1, Paul said, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So notice here that Paul's calling was not from man nor through man, but his calling was through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So when did God reveal His Son to Paul? Well, we know back in the book of Acts, chapter 3, it was while Paul was on the road to Damascus. We know that Paul, before his conversion, was known as Saul of Tarsus. And that he was a persecutor of the church. And so he had left Jerusalem with papers from the Sanhedrin, from the Supreme Court, the Supreme Religious Court of Israel, And he was on his way to Damascus to serve papers, to break up families, to break up churches, and to arrest Christians, those who were of what was called the way. But how many of you know that if our plans do not agree with God's plans, God has the prerogative to change our plans? (laughs) 
And he certainly changed the plans of one Saul of Tarsus. For it was on that road to Damascus that a light shone from heaven and a voice came from heaven. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who knocked Paul to the ground and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he rose to his feet and said, Who are you, Lord? (laughs) And the voice responded, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and go into the city and wait, and there I will tell you how you must suffer for me. And Paul's life was turned upside down. Or might I say it better, Paul's life was turned right side up. Amen. How many of you know that an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ will utterly change your life? It will take you from the guttermost to the uttermost. (laughs) He is able to completely save, to completely heal, to completely transform the life of everyone who would come to Him in faith. For there is power in the name of Jesus. For there is power in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The life of Paul was utterly transformed. He went from being the enemy of Christ to being the slave of Christ. He went from being the enemy of the church to an apostle of the church. He went from being the persecutor of believers to being a fellow brother of Christ. And we have all benefited from this glorious and miraculous transformation as Paul was converted. Paul went from being the persecutor to being the persecuted. And all of that was was on account of an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Have you had such an encounter with the Lord Jesus? If you have not, do not be surprised that you do not know joy. For our joy and our satisfaction is found in fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has the power to transform the repentant and surrendered life. And certainly that was true of Paul. Former persecutor of Christ, now a prisoner of Christ. In his greeting, Paul is joined by Timothy. Now that does not mean that Timothy was a co-writer of the epistle to the Philippians. But yet he was listed with Paul for several reasons. And I believe that those reasons are shown pretty clearly in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of His proven worth, that He served me in the furtherance of the Gospel like a child serving His Father. Therefore, I hope to send Him immediately, 
as soon as I see how things go with me. And so there are several reasons why the Apostle Paul might uh, include Timothy in this opening introduction. One would be that he was with Paul when the church was established in Philippi. And so Timothy also had a personal relationship with that congregation. And then from this passage, we see that Paul intended to send Timothy to the church in the very near future. And so this would give him a perfect opportunity to give Timothy's ministry the Pauline endorsement. Paul the Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is now endorsing the ministry of Pastor Timothy. And then another reason, in order to demonstrate to the Philippians that Timothy was of the same mind as Paul. Notice he says there, I have no one else of kindred spirit. No one else of kindred spirit. And Paul will talk at length about the importance of having that kindred spirit, of being like-minded, of literally possessing the mind of Christ. And he says, Timothy is one in spirit with me. And so he's included then in this introductory material. So who is Timothy? Well, he's from Lystra of Lycaonia, which was a part of Asia Minor. And his mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. His mother and grandmother were believers. And so Timothy had a good inheritance. Timothy witnessed Paul's persecution on Paul's first missionary trip to the city of Lystra. And it's likely that he became a believer at that time. And then when Paul returns on his second missionary journey, Timothy joins the missionary team and is with Paul, as I said, when the church in Philippi is established. They call themselves bondservants of Christ Jesus. Bondservants. What a delightful term. What an innocuous term. What a sensitive term. What a blessed term. What a wrong term. Wrong because the original Greek is not bondservant. The original Greek is doulos. Slave. And yet many translators have gone out of their way in order to avoid the negative connotations of the word slave. But Paul makes it clear. We are slaves of God. We are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he call himself a slave? Well, perhaps part of the reason is because with regards to our slavery to God, it is a title of endearment. It is a title of humility. It speaks of dependence and obedience and total surrender. We are called to be slaves of God. When used of slaves of Christ, it is a title of dignity. It indicates intense Devotion to the Lord. You see, true born-again Christians are slaves of God. He bought us. He owns us. He disciplines us. He rewards us. He provides for us. He protects us. We are God's chosen possession. Can you say amen? 
In all of creation, there is only one King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has ascended to the right hand of God and given a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess of those on the earth and under the earth and those in heaven. And every person confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And it is by His precious blood that we have been set free. Set free. Do you see the contrast? Called as slaves. And yet set free. Well, if one has been set free, then why would he or she desire to continually be referred to as a slave? If set free, why choose to remain a slave? And of course, the quick and easy answer to that is found in Romans chapter 6. Slavery to God is where true freedom is found. Can you say amen? And so Paul tells us there in Romans chapter 6, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? That is your sin. For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. I'll say it again. Slavery to God is where true freedom is found. Slavery to God is where true freedom is found. Slavery to God is where true freedom is found. You see, we are either slaves to God or slaves to sin. Slaves to God or slaves to destruction. Slaves to God or slaves to death. That's the choice. Be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ or be a slave to the sinful self resulting in wages being paid in death. Slavery to God is where true freedom is found. So what does Paul mean, slavery? Well, if we're going to understand the the full implications of that, we need to look a little bit at what slavery was like in the Roman Empire. It was a major business. Historians tell us that there were up to 20 million slaves. That's a lot of people. Many were treated with dignity. Many were treated with respect. They did not own possessions, but they were fully cared for by their masters. Their masters provided them with everything that they needed for life and health. And did so to such a degree that many of them became bond servants after their slavery. That is, they continued to remain in servitude to their master out of love. They had affection for their masters by the way they were treated. And so again, many of them would trade their slavery when their time was up in order to be bond servants. Having been purchased, their freedom given to them as a redemption price, now they decide, I just want to stay put. I like it here. I love my master. Faithful servants had significant responsibilities in the master's home. 
And therefore, they were highly regarded, highly valued. For a slave to gain their freedom, a redemption price had to be paid. And listen, in the death of Christ, God has paid our redemption price. We have been purchased and been set free through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's freed us from the power of sin. He's freed us from the penalty of sin. He's broken the chains of darkness. He's forgiven our iniquities. He sent His Word and healed our diseases. And He has crowned us with loving kindnesses and tender mercies. Can you say praise the Lord? And now, we are the slaves of God. Slaves of God. Did you ever imagine you'd come to church on a Sunday morning in January and be told, you're a slave! Welcome to your slavery! (laughs) But how many are glad you're a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. We've got the best Master going. And if we are born again, if we are blood-bought saints of God, then we are slaves. And as slaves, we are in good, good company. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. The apostles James and Peter and Jude and John all referred to themselves as slaves of Christ. Why, even Mary the mother of Jesus referred to herself as the slave of the Lord. And of course, we know in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus Himself took on the form of a slave. As God's chosen and elect, we are privileged to be called the slaves of Christ Jesus. What then does God expect of us? What are the implications of serving as a slave of Jesus Christ? I mean, much could be said in addressing that question. We've got the examples from the Old Testament. We've got the book of Acts. We've got the apostles giving us the epistles. All of these provide parameters and guidelines for living for God's glory. But I believe you can summarize them in two broad statements. What it means to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means, number one, doing God's will. And number two, completing God's work. Doing God's will and completing God's work. And the greatest example of that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who said, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. I want you to read that with me. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Slaves of God live for the purposes and plans of God. They obey the will of God and they perform the work that God has given them to do. And they do so with faithful obedience. Now, Paul's going to talk about that at length later on, so we won't get into it this morning. But let me remind us all that he says to do all of these things without griping or complaining or bellyaching or whining, to put it in the vernacular. We're to to obey the purposes and the plans of God and to do the work of God with faithful obedience. Even when it comes to our giving, we are to be cheerful givers. Those that would give to the Lord out of an abundant love and devotion to Him with their hearts brimming over with gratitude. 
that Lord, this is just a portion of that which You've given to me. And yet it represents a heart that loves You and wants to say thank You. And that's important to remember because sometimes the work our Master assigns to us is daunting. We want to shrink back from it. In fact, there are times that maybe we can relate to Jonah. We want to run for the hills! <laughs> right? The Lord calls us to do something and we're like, oh, really? Me? You want me to do that? Are you sure? Let me pray about it. <laughs> right? Good to pray about things, but it's not good to use that as an excuse to avoid doing what you know in your heart God has called you to do. Can you say amen? Oh, praise God. Am I preaching or am I meddling? <laughs> the work that God has called us to do can sometimes be a daunting task. I would say many times, if not most times, it is a daunting task. Why? Because we are not to do it in the power of the flesh. We're not to do it in the, in our own strength, in our own abilities, in our own talents. But we are to work the work of God through the power of the Spirit of God. That way we can't boast. But in humility we can say, it is only the power of Christ in me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Amen. Not through personality that gives me strength. Not through charisma that gives me strength. Through Christ that gives me strength. To Him be all glory and praise. Look at Paul's life. Slave of Christ. Called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. As we said earlier, on his first missionary journey to Lystra, which was Timothy's city, Paul was stoned stoned, drug out of the city and left for dead. So it's likely that he was unconscious, that the people thought he was dead. There we go. Come here and start riling up the people and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll end up dead. How do you like that? Paul left for dead. But what's even more amazing Paul got back up, <laughs> went back into the city, and came back to that city two more times that we know of. Wow. That's dedication. That's faithfulness. That is faithful obedience to the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who called Him and sent Him there. Think of one of the early church fathers, Polycarp. Talk about an early church father. He was a direct student of the Apostle John. He was bishop and pastor of the church in Smyrna, which is in Turkey. In 155 AD, he was called before the Roman proconsul and ordered, Take the oath and I shall release you. Curse Christ! How did Polycarp re respond? He said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my King who saved me? And he was summarily executed and then welcomed into the presence of God Most High. 
and I'm sure was told, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, now I will make you ruler over much. To God be the glory. Even Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Slave. Came in the form of a slave. The will and the work of God for Jesus was not to give you a fat bank account. The will and the work of God in Jesus was not to make your life easy. It wasn't so you could go around singing that you are tiptoeing through the tulips. The work and the will of God in Christ Jesus was that He would be given as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. That He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And Paul will tell us how important it is that we have the mind of Christ. The same attitude as that which Jesus demonstrated when He was here. When He would tell us later on in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Think about it. Jesus, who was in the form God. (laughs) God the Son! In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And all things were made through Him. And without Him was nothing made that has been made. He was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a condescension. Though He was in the form, God took upon Himself the form of slave and gave His life for our sins. And so as slaves of Christ, our ambition is to obey the will of God and to perform the work of God and to keep in step with the Spirit of God. For our lives are not our own. They were purchased by His precious blood. Through salvation, God has redeemed us. He has purchased us as His slaves. He sanctified us for His purposes. And He's granted us eternal life. And now, with overflowing gratitude, let us live lives of faithful obedience for His glory. So we've looked at Paul, the divinely inspired writer of Philippians. Now let's consider for a few moments the epistle, the, uh, the recipients of this epistle, the audience. The audience is identified as saints in Christ Jesus. Now, some people hear the word saints and immediately they're confused, right? Some people hear saints and they think about a, a certain classification of Christians that are set apart as a special people called saints. And they call people, you know, Saint uh, Peter, Saint Teresa, St. Jerome, and so on and so forth. Some religions would say only certain believers are saints. But listen, according to the Bible, all true Christians are saints. Right? We're not talking about a football team from New Orleans. We're talking about people that have been born again and purchased by the blood of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. And the word saint literally means holy one. And some people would say, well, that disqualifies me. 
And I would say, all of us who are honest would say, that disqualifies me. Except for the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? 1 Peter 2 and 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Bought by the blood of Jesus, you are now holy and set apart by the King Himself. You see, saint is the common term for Christians in the New Testament. And it speaks of being set apart unto God for His use. Set apart unto God for His use. And so the basic idea is separation for consecration. Separation for consecration. But that consecration is not because in ourselves we are good. In ourselves we are holy. In ourselves we are righteous. In ourselves, we are just little gods. No. That consecration is because we are saints in Christ Jesus. That's the qualifier. We are saints in Christ Jesus. It is in Christ that we are set apart and consecrated and made holy. Because we are in Christ. In Christ. And only in Christ. Do we receive salvation, sanctification, glorification? All of those benefits are ours in Christ. Praise the Lord. Not by works which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's His completed work on the cross. And thank God for the cross. Let our magnification and glorification be in the cross of Christ Jesus and what He has done for us. Through His precious blood, we are the called and chosen saints of God. And because of that, our boast is in the Lord. Our boast is in Jesus. That's who we boast about. Oh, there's so much more to say about this when it pertains to joy, but we'll get to it in later weeks. So again, in Philippians 1 and 1, we're told, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So we see here that Paul is addressing a well-established congregation. He's not talking about a Bible study that got together for the first time last month. He's addressing a well-established and properly ordered congregation. This was a congregation that was on mission. How do I know? Because they had demonstrated their love and support for the Apostle Paul on several occasions. Finally, we briefly notice the greetings given to them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Grace. This was the common greeting of the Greeks. And it was a wish of unmerited favor and kindness upon them. And then he uses this word peace. This was the common greeting of the Jews. Right? What's the word? Shalom. 
shalom. And even today, when we were uh, over in uh, Israel a couple, three years ago now, I guess, you would hear people saying that as they would greet each other. Shalom. And the idea there is peace, but it's a full-orbed peace. In other words, it has the sense of complete and total wholeness. That you are wishing for this person to be completely whole. To be to be made completely whole. Shalom. And then he says, it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that God is the source of our grace. God is the source of our peace. Only those who know God will fully realize grace. Only those who know God will fully realize peace. And then notice that the order in which they come. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. You see, it's by receiving the grace of God that we experience the peace of God. When, when we open our lives to God and receive the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in His grace, we're born again. And we are put at right with God. Now we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace with God puts us into the family of God where we experience peace with our brothers and sisters at a whole new level. That we are able to experience a unity of heart. We're able to experience a unity of mind. Paul talks about that at length in Philippians. To have the mind of Christ, all of us collectively, so that we could say of each other, you know, we are of kindred spirit, even as Paul said of Timothy. Peace with God through grace. Peace with others through grace. And peace of mind through grace. How many of us want the peace of mind, right? There's not a day that goes by that we don't appreciate the peace of God, especially when we're going through the deep waters. A peace that surpasses understanding will guard our hearts and minds where? In Christ Jesus. The grace that we know that opens a door to a peace in a whole new way. Peace of mind. So as we wrap up our study this morning, let me just ask you, are you experiencing the grace of and the peace that comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. If not, why not? And why not today? You see, it's so easy for us in this life to think that there's always tomorrow. But you don't have to live very long to realize that people are surprised, sometimes early in life, that there aren't as many tomorrows as they thought. And even those among us with white hair will say, those tomorrows come and go pretty quickly. <laughs> Today is the day of salvation. If you're here and you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to do that today. Open your heart to the grace of God and receive grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Just admit, I'm a sinner. And we all are. And the wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent His Son in the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus said, Whoever comes unto Me, I will in no wise cast him out. Whoever believes upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today and receive from His precious hand the grace of God. If you're a Christian, and maybe you're kind of experiencing peace in fits and starts, don't have it all the time, don't experience it all the time, let me just encourage you to know that peace is yours even when you don't feel it. If you're in Christ, you are at peace with God. Praise the Lord. If you're in Christ, you are a member of His body and at peace with your brothers and sisters, even when you don't always get along. Right? Because all of us, every last one of us, battles the old nature. And yet He wants us to be able to experience that peace that passes understanding. So today, if you're in one of those places where peace seems so elusive, I want to encourage you with just a brief statement that we will develop further in our journey ahead. Don't pursue peace. Pursue the Prince of Peace. Pursue the Prince of Peace. And it's as you pursue the Prince of Peace and keep your eyes firmly focused on Him that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds because it is in Him. It's in Christ Jesus. You'll find that it is a delightful byproduct of focusing on the Lord. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You today for the grace and peace which is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would ask, Father, this day that You would help us to focus our attention firmly upon Him. And in so doing, we would have a daily experience of peace that surpasses our understanding. We pray this especially for those times that we are going through the deep valleys of life looking wistfully at the mountaintops that we wish we were, we were treading. And Father, I pray also that as we are continuing in this study of Philippians, that You will show us new ways to see this worked out in our lives. We want to be a people on mission that are fully living up to that delightful title, slaves of God and slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that as we are slaves of Christ, we are on mission for Christ. And so help us, Lord. Help us to do Thy will. And help us, Lord, to complete Thy work and to do it in faithful obedience. And now, Father, as we give back to You a portion of that which You've richly blessed us with, we ask that You would take these tithes and that You would use them and give us wisdom to know how best to invest them, even as offerings of gratitude. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name and for His glory. And everyone said, Amen. And Amen.